This is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's a new podcast. It's February 5th. And there's a few subjects we're going to go over this week, but I want to give you some updates on uh, some legal cases to start with. And then we're going to have a musical interlude again, which is probably now my favorite part of the podcast. And then we're going to go into just the insanity of what is going on with this coming election and how it's impacting our country domestically and in terms of foreign policy due to Joe Biden being terrified that he's going to lose the election with his 36% approval rating. Now, this was a tough week. And what I want to explain a bit with this section is what it's like to be a criminal defense lawyer on some days when on its face, it just seems like a regular day with a seemingly minor court appearance. And then 24 hours later, I'm, I'm fighting for a man's life where if I lose a motion, he dies in prison, probably in the matter of weeks. So both of those things happened in a 24-hour period. And I want to give a little bit of an explanation because I think it's instructive and sort of you can understand what my life is like, at least work-wise. What I had going on this past week were two totally opposite types of cases with two totally different court appearances. One was a federal appearance, the one on Thursday, one was state. One was in Manhattan, the federal appearance. The state appearance was in Kingston, New York, which is like another planet compared to Manhattan. The case on Thursday was a federal case before Judge Lewis Kaplan. That was the infamous Trump judge who presided over the two disastrous Trump trials having to do with his sexual assault and then later defamation of E. Jean Carroll. And then we know that the last one, the defamation trial, just ended, I guess, about a week and a half ago or so. That was the one where the lawyer, Helena Baba, clearly in her first federal trial or you know, maybe her first trial ever. It's hard to tell because she clearly didn't know how to do anything. She was humiliated by Kaplan in open court, slapped down every time she opened her mouth and was uh, shown bare for the world to see that she was unaware of the most basic rules of evidence. Now, Judge Kaplan can be a tough judge, regardless of how stupid one of the lawyers uh, is that's before him. And, you know, as I was laughing about Helena Baba last week on the podcast, there was a part of me that was thinking, you know, Kaplan's not always easy with any lawyer. And then I had a case with him on Thursday in a very tricky situation. And uh, the case is probably the most difficult lift that I've ever had in my 34 years now as a defense lawyer. It's not the most complicated in terms of procedure, but in terms of getting what I need to get for this client, I don't know that I've ever had um, a more difficult road to hoe. Uh, I have an 18-year-old defendant facing a 45-year mandatory minimum if he's convicted, but the case is unusual in that the government recognized at the beginning that the penalties were too severe for this defendant for what he did, that there are a lot of issues which really do require some kind of significant leniency compared to the charges and the penalties. But the parties, the government and myself, we needed to work together. That's what we decided to try to reach a result that we could then present to Judge Kaplan, who we were lucky enough to get pulled out of a wheel 
to uh, be the judge overseeing the case. He would stay out of it pretty much until the sentencing. We wanted to present to him a united front on how we believe the case should go in terms of sentencing. Now, many judges don't like to be excluded like this from the process. Some get offended. In addition, there is a huge amount of discovery in this case. Discovery is the evidence. And we needed to go through it before we could even begin to put together a submission for the government, a mitigation submission. Only after we put that submission into them could we even begin discussing a resolution with them. And because the charges were so serious, this could not be done half-assed at all. But naturally, Judge Kaplan, like many judges, has his own timetable for cases, He needs to keep them moving in his mind and set a motion schedule, set a trial schedule. Some judges in the Southern District, including Kaplan, will set a trial date at your first appearance when you're pleading not guilty. You haven't even received page one of the evidence yet, and he's already got you on a trial schedule, which is a lot of pressure for the defense if you have any interest in winning the case. So oftentimes judges want to get stuff done quicker than the parties do. And if he doesn't like the defendant, if he doesn't like the charges, they're just human, these judges, and sometimes they want to get their mitts on the defendant quicker. And by getting their mitts on them, I mean get their hands on them at sentencing. So we had already successfully convinced Judge Kaplan not to set a motion or trial schedule in November. That was at the first appearance. And I've talked about that first appearance. You know, look, this is not, in the scheme of things, it's not a very important thing on its face. But to the lawyers involved, it is. To the client, to the defendant, it really is. It was a difficult endeavor for us to get Judge Kaplan to back off pushing this trial, I believed, in November when it started. He's very strong-willed and oftentimes very difficult to push off his position. So I had asked for 90 days in November uh, just to get through the discovery with no schedules being set, the motions or the trial schedule, as I said, and I had convinced him to agree. And that was in November. Now it's February 1st or so, our court appearance where we were expected to set those schedules, tell them where we were with this was now upon us. I believe our appearance was set for tomorrow, maybe Tuesday of this week. And the parties needed more time. We haven't gotten through it. The government still was getting us discovery. There was a massive amount of information that we needed to break down. We needed to have experts look at it, provide reports to us, do testing on the defendant. None of this stuff uh, was easy. And instead of waiting for the court appearance and doing it in person where it might be a little more difficult, I decided to write a letter motion explaining the situation, laying it out, getting the government to consent to our application, and hoping that we could just put it in via letter. The judge would sign it at the bottom, and it would be sort of a painless endeavor. I I basically wanted to avoid an uncomfortable court appearance where I'd have to do a lot more begging and tap dancing and dancing between the raindrops and dodging the pies that he'd be throwing at me because I felt that I'd like to put less on the record and make it easier for all of us. And and I'm not going to say that I wasn't influenced by how Judge Kaplan treated Helena Baba. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. Now, granted, she's a moron, uh, granted, she's the dumbest lawyer in America, and granted, she's as as offensive and odious as her client Trump, all reasons for a judge like Judge Kaplan to destroy her and humiliate her while he was doing it, even though I thoroughly enjoyed it as he was doing it. It's all fun and games, is what I'm saying, until you're the guy in the hot seat. 
You know, it's easy to be on the outside laughing in a podcast. And then all of a sudden you got to deal with Judge Kaplan the following week. And I haven't told you the particulars of the case that I have before him, and I'm not going to yet, but let's just say that the allegations are possibly the worst that I've had in 34 years of practice. And that is no joke. The worst. Just such a confusing set of bizarre behaviors. I did not expect much empathy from Judge Kaplan, and perhaps I expected quite the opposite about what the defendant was charged with. But at the same time, and like, what's the worst that can happen to me? This is, you know, when you get to be my age as a lawyer, what's the judge going to do? Yell at me? The way he yelled at uh, Helena Baba? Uh, I mean, I'm a grown man. You can yell (laughs) at me all you want. I'll probably just start laughing. I don't care. I mean, I know that's bizarre to the younger people that are listening. When somebody yells at you, you think that that could be a painful, scary endeavor. But as a grown man, you're going to fucking yell at me? Go fuck yourself. I'm going to laugh and yell at you back. I just don't care. It's just sort of how it is as you become an adult. There's really nothing that a judge can do to me that would really upset me. Obviously, it would upset me for the case, for the client. But in terms of what he can do to me personally, unless he pulls out a gun and shoots me, there's really nothing I just don't care, including if he wants to put me in jail for a few days. I just don't care. There's nothing that's going to get me really to change what I'm doing. But I didn't want to find that out in person, which is why we put the letter request in asking for the adjournment and tried to avoid that appearance. And as I said, the government wholeheartedly agreed because they didn't want to get yelled at either. They didn't want to have to draw any fire from the application. Maybe they'd get blamed for turning over the discovery, the evidence too late. So we put the letter application into Judge Kaplan on Wednesday. The next day on Thursday, I met with the defendant's family, and they asked me how I felt the judge was handling the case. Was he fair? And I said, look, I've always felt that Judge Kaplan was fair. But I, I have to say that a lot of lawyers had become spooked by what Judge Kaplan did, not that just not just to Helena Baba, but also the way he handled the Sam Bankman Freed case. That was the huge fraud case that he had right before the Trump trial. And he really whipped those lawyers as well in that case. And I thought embarrassed them publicly. But, you know, I have to say, and I'm being fair to Judge Kaplan, those lawyers were certainly obviously smarter than Helena Baba, but they got tagged pretty hard by Judge Kaplan. And, you know, but at the same time, these were former federal prosecutors. They're not, in my mind, the best lawyers that you choose to try a case as a defense lawyer, especially a guy like a a fraudster like Sam Bankman Freed. But anyway, I, I digress. We put the letter in, and as I said, the family came in the same day and expressed concern about Judge Kaplan. They were very nervous. And I was honest. I said, look, in my experience, the guy is fair. He's always been fair with me. And that's not always good for the defense because sometimes you need more help than just fair. Fair sometimes means that your client's going to get 8,000 years in prison because that's the fair result. I told them how he handles this letter application will give us some guidance. If he grants it, just signs it. And that's a better sign than if he immediately calls us into court and wants to hear from us or tell us what he wants instead of what we wanted. Of course, five minutes after I said that, we received an email from the judge's clerk saying he wanted to see the parties, the prosecution, and the defense lawyers the next day in court at 11 a.m. 
So that was, that was, that was a little bit nerve wracking. I'm not going to lie. I wasn't thrilled with the development. Again, everything you do in a case when you're a criminal lawyer, this is not a lawsuit, a parking garage lawsuit where nobody gives a shit what happens. This is somebody's liberty. This is somebody's life. Everything you do in a case like this, if you're a good lawyer and not a Helena Baba, is measured beforehand, thought out. Every case is a war that's filled with many battles, and you need strategy for every one of these battles, no matter how minor it is. You need to win as many battles as you can in order to win the war. Nothing can be done half-assed, even if it appears that it's coming out half-assed. If it's coming out half-assed, that's by design. You know, you look at guys playing the guitar in a concert, and they look like they're so effortless. Trust me, it's not effortless for them. There's a tremendous amount of work that goes into making it look effortless. So as I said, if it looks half-assed, it's because you're strategized to make it look that way for a good reason. So we go to court the next day, and Judge Kaplan comes out. He wants to know why I'm asking for an additional 45 days. And I, I laid it out very meticulously and honestly, because you have to with Judge Kaplan. You cannot blow any smoke. You can't be evasive because he's smart enough to see right through it and, and go for your throat. So you might as well try to prevent that from happening by, I don't know, being honest from the start. I explained to him why we were doing this case, handling the case without his involvement and how I was handling it differently than perhaps any case that I'd ever had in federal court during my entire career. I didn't scream at him. I didn't tell him not to talk to me that way, that I don't appreciate it. My client didn't throw up his hands and mutter like an idiot like Trump did, even though, you know, my client was facing decades in prison, and it wasn't just a case about money over somebody that he had raped or, excuse me, sexually assaulted Trump. He didn't rape anybody. He just sexually assaulted her, which, frankly, is like the same thing. Judge Kaplan listened. And he made a joke that was actually funny. I have to say, it was funny. I laughed. We all, you know, he and I both laughed pretty hard because it was funny. After it was over, after the appearance was over, at the end of it, excuse me, he said, I'm going to give you what you want. And instead of giving me the 45 days that I asked for, he gave me 66 days instead. And then he apologized for bringing us in to court because he realized it wasn't necessary, but he's right. He said, look, I just wanted to find out what was going on, which is completely reasonable. He is the federal judge. That's what his purpose is, is to control these cases and keep them moving and make sure things are being done right so that the defendant can get the constitutionally guaranteed justice that he needs to get. So that's why the judge acts the way he does. And and I have to tell you, he was appropriate and he was professional and he was warm and he was kind, which is the guy that I knew. You know, the, the one that you see yelling at Helena Baba, that's not normal for him. But you don't normally get such a stupid lawyer in front of you if you're a judge. And it's got to be incredibly frustrating for him because all these judges care about, they're going to be nasty to you if you're a shitty lawyer, if you're not prepared. He's tough on all of us, all the, the judges, because he expects you to be professional and prepared. Does he get pissed if you're an idiot? Of course he does. Just like I get pissed if you're an idiot. You don't, you know, you don't lie to the guy. You don't be a buffoon like a, a Helena Baba, and you'll be just fine. Period. End the story. 
Now, as a postscript to the Helena Baba slash Trump debacle, the Monday after the trial ended, I didn't get a chance to bring this up because it happened on the day of the last podcast. Helena Baba issues a press release and did interviews about a motion that she had just made asking that the, the Gene Carroll judgment be set aside because Judge Kaplan hadn't revealed that he worked in the same law firm as Gene Carroll's lead attorney 30 plus years ago. And in her letter to the court, which should have been a motion, but it wasn't because Helena Baba doesn't know how to make a proper motion legally, she wrote that Judge Kaplan's failure to disclose this prior relationship was, quote, insane and so incestuous and, and a violation of judith, judicial ethics rules, which, of course, if you have a brain, if you have even a pea brain inside your head, you would know that Helena Baba was wrong, period, and the stories. Now, I laughed when I read the letter, mainly mainly because it was so incredibly comically, stupidly written. And the legal issue in my mind was a non-issue that would be slapped aside in five seconds. It wouldn't be, you know, this great calamitous event that MAGA was getting all hot and bothered over there. They're all the leading MAGA grifters were saying online that Jean Carroll shouldn't count her money too fast, that Helena Baba, who will eventually be named to the Supreme Court, was to the rescue here. Needless to say, Roberta Kaplan, Carol's lawyer, filed a short letter the next day ripping apart the Helena Baba allegations and threatened to seek sanctions from her for her continued idiocy. Immediately, Baba backed off and withdrew her letter. After all that, it was incest. It was an ethics violation. 24 hours later, she withdrew it and again appeared to be a clown. Somehow, Helena Baba, when she made this allegation about Carol's lawyers working in the same firm, by the way, 30 years ago, never mentioned why she was okay with another of Jean Carroll's lawyers being the clerk to Judge Kaplan at the beginning of her career, and he officiated at her wedding reception. So think about that. Helena Baba didn't mention that she okayed that when that was revealed by the court, by the plaintiff's lawyer, but suddenly she had a problem with the judge and the other lawyer overlapping at a law firm for a year. They didn't even know each other 30-something years before. So, you know, look, uh, there is, and she's calling it incest. That's not even a legal term in terms of the of the of the procedure. What she meant was a conflict of interest. Now, I understand that incest is probably in her head because there's a decent chance that Helena Baba is the product of an incestuous relationship between her father and his sister based on just her IQ alone. But again, I don't think that Helena Baba will end up on the Supreme Court. I'm just letting you know. I know there's some MAGA listeners here. I have to tell you, I don't mean to crush your dreams, your hopes and dreams, but you have to have an IQ of at least, I think, 80, probably, 80. I think 75, is that functionally retarded? So I'm guessing Helena Baba's, she's hovering around 80. I think you need to do a little higher. Anyway, I'll say this as a last word on this case. I have no doubt that if I was representing Trump during the defamation trial that ended with him owing an additional $83 million to uh, E. Jean Carroll, if I represented him, the total would have been around $10 million. I have no doubt. I think that Helena Baba cost Trump about $73 million in that trial alone. She's been sanctioned, by the way, in another case for a million dollars that Trump is going to pay as well. I think that her mistakes, her handling of the case, 
her handling of her client, was a $73 million mistake. And that's no minor number, because in the nine months since Trump was indicted in his first case at the end of March of last year, he raised $53 million from his idiot supporters. He spent $39 million of the 53, not on getting out the vote, not on television commercials that convince people to vote for him. He spent it on legal fees, on lawyers like Helena Baba, who made millions off of him, despite the fact that she's grossly incompetent. She cost him $83 million in one week of work, one short trial, about $73 million more than he would have had to pay with a competent lawyer. He only raised $53 million in the nine months prior. So think what a big deal that was. I mean... That's it's way more money than he'll raise in a year is what he lost at a one-week trial. And his moronic supporters will keep paying his legal bills because a billionaire shouldn't have to pay his own bills. We all know that. That's what his idiot supporters are for. Now, the downside, and I'm going to get into, I'm going to segue, if I can, into a, another case. The downside of having to spend time before Judge Kaplan on Thursday was that it took time away from me preparing for what I had on Friday, which was a bail argument in Kingston, New York, for the assisted suicide case that I discussed last week. The government was seeking incredibly the detention of the defendant. He was an 85-year-old doctor with all sorts of medical issues. Now, when I say that they were seeking detention, that means no bail. That means that he stays in jail until the trial ends. If he loses, he stays there. If he wins, he walks out. So for a defendant who was as sick and old as my client, Dr. Stephen Miller, he dies in prison before the trial even starts because it could take a year to try the case. There's no way that the guy would live, would survive a year in prison at his age with all of the sicknesses. In addition, if he gets convicted, there's mandatory years of jail time. So it was important to keep him out, in my mind, for as long as possible so he doesn't die in prison. Now, again, we discussed this case last week in my podcast a a woman with chronic pain contacted an organization in Arizona that supported people for dying with dignity and choosing their so-called exit instead of dying miserably with pain. Uh, They refer that organization, referred the call to my client, who's a retired pediatrician and family doctor who strongly believes in people choosing when to die when they're terminally ill or in chronic pain. He emailed and spoke to this woman for months, tried to talk her out of it at some points, because he wanted it to be her absolutely, you know, final decision without any question that she was certain that's what she wanted to do. He then flew to New York to be with her when she ended her life. The evidence, according to the prosecutor, was video of him bringing in a nitrogen tank into the hotel room where she died and video of him going out to the hardware store while she was in the hotel room to pick up a wrench which was needed to tighten the tubing uh, that would be coming from the tank to uh, the mask that she'd be wearing. Now, this occurred in November of last year, and Dr. Miller was arrested in Arizona in January. He was originally just charged with the assisting suicide, which is a felony in New York and still a very serious charge. And he was arrested in Arizona, appeared in front of an Arizona judge, and he was released on bond after spending a week in jail. Now, the week in jail was not easy for him, even though, as I said, it was just a week. He has a number of serious medical problems. He's allergic to gluten, which means he can't have bread. He's on all these medications. He lost eight pounds, and he only weighed 135 when he went in. So in one week, he lost eight pounds, which is 
not a minor amount for somebody his weight. He was very lucky in my mind to even survive the week. Upon his release in Arizona, he still had to travel to Kingston to face the charges there because that's where the case is. And now they were increased in severity. The prosecutors added some assault counts and he's now facing decades in prison. I called the prosecutor as soon as I got hired, and she was pleasant and decent enough. I talked to her last week. I asked her if my client could come to Kingston the following Monday. I think I spoke to her last Tuesday, so meaning that it would be today. Dr. Miller, as I said, he needed the weekend, the extra couple days to get his strength back because I didn't know if the judge was going to put him in at this bail hearing. What if he denied the our motion for bail, or actually granted their motion for detention. So I thought these extra two days were important. And, you know, as I said, he wasn't given his medication, proper food. The prosecutor said no. She wanted him there on Friday, which made me nervous because what if we got bail granted, but it couldn't be done on Friday because the court day ended? He'd have to spend the weekend in. I felt that it was really arbitrary and punitive, but look, I'm sure she had her reasons. The prosecutor is actually a nice person, but I just felt there was no point in denying him the extra two days to get to Kingston, especially when he was agreeing, Dr. Miller, to come to New York voluntarily to surrender. But more importantly, what was very concerning to me, obviously, was that the prosecutor refused to consent to any bail package. Whatever I offered, she said no until finally, and including I offered to have a GPS bracelet put on his leg so that they would know where he was 24 hours a day. And she finally said, there's no conditions. We're seeking detention. Now, I had to be careful regarding when we were going to surrender him. I had to, you know, if that's what she wanted Friday, I had to do it because all I needed was to say, no, we're doing it on Monday. And then she tells the judge during the bail hearing, I wanted him earlier and he didn't come. I just couldn't take that chance. So I needed to get him into New York on Thursday. I told him he needed to get on a plane the following day to get there and actually in two days to get there so that there would be no question that he voluntarily returned to court. Now, the New York bail statute lists a number of factors to be weighed when determining bail, but they all go towards one ultimate factual determination, whether the defendant is a flight risk. That's the only issue. You could be a killer that killed 50 people. That's not in the bail statute in New York, if you can believe. That's not a reason to keep somebody inside in in prison which of course is insane, but that's New York. When you live in this kind of left a shithole, these are the kind of bail statutes that you get. So flight was the only issue. And all these factors really didn't need to be weighed because the only issue that mattered was whether he was going to return to court for his appearances. And he's already shown that he can be trusted. He flew from Arizona voluntarily after he was released from prison in Arizona. He flew voluntarily to New York. If there was ever a time for him to run, it would have been during that period when he was free in Arizona before he had to come to New York for the appearance. And he was also facing even more jail time than he was facing when he was charged and he learned about it in Arizona. So as I said, my client flew in and I had to get to court. Friday morning at some point to be there. He had to be processed and fingerprinted first. And I had to drive the 90 minutes to Kingston and argue for bail for this 85-year-old defendant. And I'm going to ask you this. What was your Friday like? What was your, what's your typical Friday like? You know, you take it slow. You know, that's the weekend. You know, you're working for the weekend like lover boy. I mean, that's what you're doing. You're taking it easy. You're drinking your coffee. You're relaxing. 
because you're getting ready for your week to be done. You got the weekend coming up. Me, I'm driving to Kingston, New York on an attempt to get my client out on bail, an elderly man who will be dead in a matter of weeks, perhaps, if I lose this motion. That was my Friday morning. That's what I was thinking as I was driving up to Kingston. That was my stress that I had on Friday morning. I walk into court and the judge is already on the bench. My client is sitting there waiting for me. I'm taking my coat off and he's already starting the appearance. I had met the judge for the first time then. And I met my client for the first time. He's tiny, very old and tired looking. He's wearing these big orthopedic black rubbery shoes that really are like sneakers, but they look like shoes as socks are kind of rolled down because the elastic isn't keeping him up. He was a mess. He was handcuffed. He was terrified. He looked exhausted. It was sad for me because, you know, this is like somebody's grandfather. This is somebody's great-grandfather who's sitting there in handcuffs. It was appalling. The detectives were appalled. They were, like, just shocked at how ugly it was, the whole thing. And the prosecutor gets up and mentions all the evidence against him, how he'll surely be convicted. He's going to get a sentence that'll be a a functional life sentence. Now, at this point, they can say anything they want in these bail applications. The indictment is just unsealed then. I hadn't even seen it. She handed it to me while she was speaking. And I've seen zero evidence in the case. So at that point, you're forced to rely on the word of a prosecutor who oftentimes on such an important issue like bail will say anything to get the defendant remanded, even if it's untrue. She stated that she was sure the defendant was being financed by one of these right to die with dignity organizations, and therefore he had the means to flee and not return to court. I whispered to my client, is this true? Were you paid by these organizations? He said, absolutely not. The only thing I received was uh, some reimbursement money from the woman who ended her life. Now, the main thrust of the prosecutor's argument beyond that was that my client had been convicted of tax fraud 15 years ago, which he had, and that he was facing a major jail sentence on a case that had overwhelming proof. He's already committed fraud once. He could be lying again. And he also was a wealthy man who hid his assets, and therefore he couldn't be trusted to return to court. Now, I didn't think it was a particularly strong motion for detention. I don't think she did either. She's a smart prosecutor. She certainly knows it wasn't a particularly strong application. But you know what? Judges do whatever they want. And you get upstate New York, you get a little crazier judges sometimes uh, because they're a little more conservative. Uh, They don't care. They just want to put a guy away. It's a political case. And they want to put a guy into jail. And that's the end of it. And you really can't argue it because by the time you appeal it and win, the guy could be dead. Could take weeks. So I, I did feel that it was a dishonest proffer by the prosecutor to the court. Again, I don't know the judge. And I really didn't know what to expect. So I had to really scorch the earth in response. I couldn't take a chance of holding anything back because if I lost, the guy's dead and the case is going to be over soon. So I started my comments by stating that this is the part of the case for a criminal defense lawyer and all the parts of the case that is oftentimes the most frustrating. And I touched on it before. The government gets up and makes all these accusations, all of these horrible allegations, and provides no proof before the bail argument. They don't give us the proof, any of the evidence in the case. So we're sort of stuck with arguing oftentimes these specious allegations that fall apart once, you know, there's, you know, light is shined upon them, but it doesn't fall apart until after the decision on detention is made. 
And what I said from the beginning is that it was a flat-out lie to state that the defendant was getting money from these death-with-dignity organizations, that the government had been investigating him since November. Surely they subpoenaed his bank records. So surely they had money, uh, evidence of money going into his account over the years from these death-with-dignity organizations. But of course, they didn't have it because there was no payments made. I mean, they could have subpoenaed them easily. Why make the allegation in court and say that you're certain about it when you know damn well that you don't have a clue? It's awful to say such a thing in court as an officer of the court. I mean, it's, it's a poisonous and potentially devastating accusation, saying that he has the means to flee because he's being funded by these organizations, even though there's not a shred of proof of it, and it's being presented as if it's God's truth. Now, the truth is, if I got up and lied my ass off the way she did, I'd be sanctioned or otherwise punished by a court. Prosecutors pull this shit every single day and get away with it 99% of the time during bail applications. It's outrageous, and she should have been slapped down by the judge as soon as I came back with saying, where's the evidence? How can she say this? What is her evidence? He should have asked her point blank, what is your evidence? How dare you say that, that it's fact when you have nothing to back it up other than your desperate zeal to win the bail motion? But this is what it is to be a defense lawyer. You know, you get abused plenty and you just got to swallow the shit. You got to eat these shit sandwiches sometimes and you got to keep your temper down if you're capable. And I was plenty sarcastic and nasty about it. I also pointed out that they're saying how wealthy he is. Did she mention that he lives in a mobile home in a trailer? That the vast wealth that the prosecutor is claiming that the defendant has is unsupported by any evidence. Show us the money. I suppose he enjoys living in a trailer as such a wealthy man because we all know that wealthy people enjoy living in fucking trailers. Judge listened. He should have slapped the shit out of the prosecutor. But he didn't because this is what prosecutors are allowed to do. They're allowed to lie. You think defense lawyers lie? Ha! Now, I brought up two main points. First, I noted that the prosecutor never mentioned in her comments that the defendant flew back voluntarily for his arraignment, knowing that the government was asking that he be remanded with no bail, knowing that the court could put him in, and he still didn't run. I mean, isn't that the answer to the question about flight? Of course he's not going to run. And, you know, there was really no point in going through the factors, as I said, because the question was answered about whether he could be trusted. He flew back. And the second point that I made was not quite as much of a sledgehammer, but I thought it was pretty powerful. I said, look, if you remand him today, he dies in prison and he dies soon. This is a case with important issues about the the right to die with dignity the, the choice, this is a, a thing that's legal in multiple states in America. It's not legal in New York. It surely will be legal in New York at some point, being able to uh, take your life instead of waiting to die miserably with pain, with some dignity. So if you put him in now, he doesn't get to the trial because the trial could be in a year. He dies. Is that how you want this case to end? A case as important as this? with the man dying in the lockup before the trial even starts. Now, as he was delivering, the judge listened to all of it. He was certainly wonderfully nice and smart. I mean, the guy was probably too smart 
to be a judge in Kingston, New York. And I th- suspect he knows that. I knew that I was right, but it doesn't mean a judge can't do the opposite. It happens all the time. Luckily, the judge agreed. He set bail after about an hour of argument. And now we just needed to post the bond to get Dr. Miller out of custody. He was there with his companion. I also had my bail bondsman extraordinaire with me, Ira Juddelson, who is, you know, they, they call him a celebrity bail bondsman. What the fuck is a celebrity bail bondsman? Anyway, but he's like the most competent person at his job, perhaps who ever existed. Out of all the people that do jobs in the world, Ira Juddelson might be the most competent person at his job. He knows every, he knows more than the judges, you know, more, he knows more than the defense lawyers. And at one point he was sitting behind me and I love Ira. I've known him for, for decades now. And any case I have that requires bail, he's the only, I don't even have a second bondsman. He's the only one that I have. At some point during the bail argument, the judge asked me if the man sitting behind me in the audience was Dr. Miller's son. It was actually Ira. So I turn around, I see Ira, and I said to the court, if it'll help you in deciding to release the defendant, yes, that's his son. You know, I can be funny sometimes. We all left. Dr. Miller was released. He flew home to Arizona. And of course, now the pressure's off for one day. The problem is now I have to figure out a way to win the trial. But at least on Friday, I could relax for a few hours and enjoy that win. Now, we're going to take a quick break here, and then we're going to have our music interlude, and then we're going to go to a a final subject. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit for our music interlude. Last week was the Kinks, and one of the most underrated bands ever in my mind. And, and I've, I've listened to the Kinks at length over this past week, and there are many albums, and there is like a hundred classic songs. And I have to say something, I'm going to say something that's going to be pretty controversial, I think. I've got some uh, music people that listen to the podcast, and I'm going to say this with some conviction. I think that the Kinks are perhaps one of the top five rock bands ever. Ever. I'm not saying that they definitely are. I'm saying they are in the conversation of top five greatest rock bands ever. I'll say this to the people that are, that are you know, laughing at me now, that are laughing audibly. I can hear you. I can hear you laughing. How many other bands were vital in three decades? Let me ask you that. That were that long-lasting and didn't just hang on, you know, like the Rolling Stones. I mean, Jesus Christ. But this was a band, the Kinks, that had big hits and great music, not just hits, but great music from the early 60s through the mid-80s. I can think of two other bands besides the Kinks And one of them is not the Rolling Stones, even though they released their 1981 album. It was in the 80s of Tattoo You. It was it was recycled songs from earlier earlier uh, uh, sessions, and they pulled them out and they put it into an album. And they had uh, a couple of hits, few hits, but I, I don't consider that to be an 80s album. I consider that to be a 70s. So the Stones were the 60s and the 70s. I can think of two bands that were vital. In three decades, 60s, 70s, into the 80s, and one of the bands, three bands total, one of the bands is the Kinks. But again, I would, I'm begging you, 
I'm literally begging you, go through the Kinks albums. As I said, I found about 100 classic songs. Not good songs, but fantastic songs. Ray Davies is a genius, a living genius. Please spend some time on the Kinks. You won't be sorry. Now, this week's band is not a band that I love like the Kinks. It's a band that I grew up hating. Hating. They personified the disco era. They were the kings of disco. Open shirts, hairy chests, gold medallions on their hairy chests. They did falsettos, just sickening music to me. Truly revolting, disgusting, stomach-churning disco music. We had this classic rock era from, you know, we had, you know, the original rock started in the 50s. We then got into heavier stuff in the 60s and into the 70s shortly. And then the, we, this, this puke, this disco era ruined it all. The punk rock era and new wave era mitigated it to a, a bit, to a degree. But disco really did suck. It really did. It sucked then and it sucks now. And the Bee Gees were the major cause of it. And their, 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 their disgustingly catchy album, the soundtrack to the John Travolta disco movie, Saturday Night Fever, which actually was a really good movie. But, that, but again, I digress. Disco ruined everything, and I blamed the Bee Gees for years for their slop, for their shit, for their shit music. Only as an older man, because you become wiser as you become older. To become smarter, did I venture into their music a bit and find out that they had done some really good stuff in the 60s, before the disco era, like phenomenal music, not disco at all, completely different, fantastic, gifted songwriting and singing as well, for real. Only talking about the 60s, I think maybe into 1971. The song that I picked, and there are a bunch from this era, is a bizarrely depressing song. I want you to listen, you know, read the lyrics as well. Listen to them as you listen to the song. The song is, I started a joke. Find it on your Apple Music. Find it on your Spotify. I started a joke. Get the studio version. Don't get the mono version. I want you to listen to it. I'm going to play a few seconds of it at the beginning. Okay, because I don't care if I get sued. It's worth it. All right? It's worth it for me to play a few seconds of the song. Get it on Apple. Get it on Spotify. It's a haunting song. Mr. Producer, play the first, I don't know, bunch of seconds. Go ahead. Hit it. I started a joke Which started the whole and when you have the chance, listen to the other great BG songs from the late 60s. I'm not going to list them here for you now. I'm just going to give you that one. But there are some really fantastic songs. Next week's, or next, the next podcast, I hope it's next week's, will be a band that is truly close to my heart. Uh, a completely underrated band, as, as most of the bands are that I love. I'm going to play uh, parts of a song it's actually two versions of it. I want you to listen to it next week. It's phenomenal as well. But this week, the Bee Gees, I started a joke. Just It's off the charts great. Now, the next and last topic we're going to talk about is the state of the country right now. 
Just as in 2020, we're faced with an election, at least today, between two awful candidates, this awful career politician with the worst foreign policy decisions, the worst judgment ever in Joe Biden, and and then this awfully stupid, horrible person in Donald Trump who runs at about 5% efficiency and will mostly waste his presidency if he wins, just as he wasted the four years that he had in office from 2016 to 20. However, he did have some good policies, even if he delivered on so few of them. As much as I really hate Trump for being such an idiot, somebody so dumb, to hire a Helena Baba thinking that was a good idea. The country cannot survive another four years with this Democratic Party. Simply cannot. As I said in a September podcast, this is a one-issue election, or at least should be. The border. The illegals. That's it. Joe Biden and the Democrats have kept an open border with Mexico for over three years now. It is no accident what they're doing and why they're doing. It couldn't be more clear. They want more Democratic voters and are willing to destroy America to get it done because they don't want to lose another election. We've had one million come across the border just from October of last year through the end of January. The numbers are increasing. We're up to around 10 million or so illegals coming into America that we know of since Biden came into office. I'm sure there's significantly more. If he's reelected, we'll end up with probably 25 to 30 million illegals during his two terms, at least. There's no place to put them. New York is overrun, and yet the liberals are doing all they can to keep the illegals here at the expense of American citizens because of votes. Now, all of a sudden, if you've noticed, last couple of weeks, Joe Biden has gotten serious about the border. No, we're going to stop it. We're not going to let it happen anymore. And the Republicans are suddenly getting serious as well. Uh, Governor Abbott from Texas woke up out of his, what is it, Rumpelstiltskin? Is he the one that fell asleep for all those years? I think Rumpelstiltskin. Was it Rumpelstiltskin or was it Rapunzel? I don't fucking know. But one of them fell asleep for a long time. But uh, Governor Abbott of Texas finally woke up and decided uh, to put up a razor wire to prevent the savages from coming across. Now, in New York City, Mayor in the club, you can play the music, cue it up. Mayor in the club, Eric Adams, introduced, because he really does not like the illegals. That's what he's told us. Instead, though, he introduced a $53 million program, which will hand out prepaid credit cards to illegal families residing in the city's hotels. So not only are we paying for the $53 million, we're also paying for their hotel rooms, which otherwise would be empty, and the hotels are laughing their asses off. This program will provide the illegals the ability to purchase food at bodegas, grocery stores, supermarkets, convenience stores. The illegals must sign an affidavit swearing that these funds will only be spent on food or baby supplies, and if they don't use the funds appropriately, they'll get kicked out of the program. Listen, I can tell you this, I can promise you this, that they will sell these $1,000 cards to the bodega owners for $700 in cash. That's how they do it. I know because I represent store owners who have committed this kind of fraud. The illegals don't want to be limited to spending the $1,000 on food or diapers. They want the cash. They will sell the cards. So not only are illegals in New York getting free housing and free money, they don't have to pay any taxes on it. Liberals want them to be able to vote as well, even before they become citizens. That's what this is about. And there are upwards, by the way, of 65,000 homeless veterans in America who are not getting the handouts and freebies that the criminal illegals are getting from America. Are these illegals good people? You know, maybe some of them are. 
But most of them are not. Venezuela is emptying their prisons and sending that human waste here. Uh, They come here and what do they do? Well, they commit crimes. They set up crime rings. They love it here because they know that the Democrats are welcoming them in. By the way, in Washington state, it was reported that $340 million in federal COVID funds were diverted to illegals. Washington state only received $4.4 billion. What, 9% of it was given to illegals sending them checks. That's how insane liberals are. Forget veterans. Forget Americans. We need to give it to the illegal slop that's coming in. Now, remember the video from last week you saw, which showed the four illegals beating the crap out of uh, two NYPD officers. They were released on no bail, of course, in New York. They walked out of the courthouse. They're flipping the bird to reporters. And they had plane tickets that were paid for by American taxpayers. And they believed to have uh, flown to California. Now, you can now be an illegal. Beat the shit out of cops in New York City. Flip the bird when you get out of court because you don't have to post any bail, not a dollar of bail. This is what New York City has become. Why would anyone be dumb enough to be a cop in New York City? You got to be some kind of fucking ignoramus to want to do it. And the media is writing about these illegals who beat the cops. They're on the run. They're on the run. They're not on the run. They were released with no bail. They were charged with beating the cops, zero bail. They can go anywhere they want. As long as they show up for their court appearance, they're free men. And of course, they're not going to show up for the next court appearance because they're illegal scumbags who beat up cops. They have no respect for the law. They don't care. And we've got a a leftist scumbag district attorney in Alvin Bragg who's only about race. Trust me on this one. If you have a white defendant, suddenly he gets a little more conservative when it comes to uh, being tough on crime. Black, brown, whatever the fuck color it is, you know, he's just opening up the jail cell. He will surely drop the top charges, the most serious charges, and let these uh, illegals plead guilty to next to nothing. I don't even think they're going to come back, though, but they should, because Bragg will uh, lay out the red carpet for him. Kathy Hochul, our horse-faced leftist governor, really seemed concerned about cops getting beaten up by illegals. When asked about whether the illegals who beat the cops should be deported, she took a typically strong position for a liberal. I think that's actually something that should be looked at. That's what she said. I mean, talk about portraying strength. Quote, I mean, if someone commits a crime against a police officer in the state of New York and they're not here legally, it's definitely worth checking into. These are law enforcement officers who should never under any circumstances being subjected, be subjected to physical assault. It's wrong on all accounts. And I'm looking to judges and prosecutors to do the right thing. Hey, lady. You were the one who allowed the bail reform, which allowed these illegal scumbags who we house and give free money to, to be let out of jail on no bail. You were the one that did it. And look how soft she is on illegals beating up cops. But when two alleged former members of the IDF who are students at Columbia released, according to the police, I suppose, and the Columbia terrorist victims, so-called victims, they said it was a, a biochemical uh, a spray, a chemical spray, a killer spray. Guess what? As I said, I represent one of them. They're lying. They're completely fucking lying, which is why the two students haven't been charged yet. All right? Kathy Hochul called for hate crimes. That she's tough against. Somebody who sprays a, a novelty fart spray 
a non-toxic novelty fart spray, that person should be charged with a hate crime. But beating the shit out of cops, and she's not sure what should be done by illegals, not by American citizens. In December, a four-time deported, deported illegal alien killed a mother and one of her three sons in a fatal drunk driving crash. The 37-year-old illegal was from El Salvador, and he was charged with killing a 46-year-old mother of three, as well as a 16-year-old son in Colorado. In December also, an illegal who was wanted by ICE was released on no bail in New York, was arrested again, this time for a brutal rape of a woman in Delaware. Last year, a migrant from Venezuela who was bused from New York City to an upstate hotel in New York was charged with raping a woman in front of her three-year-old child at the hotel, at the migrant hotel. But forget all the rapists that we're letting into America because Democrats need votes. How about terrorists? Are they worse than rapists to you? ICE confirmed last week that a member of the Somalia-based Al-Shabaab terror group was caught entering the U.S. illegally in March of 2023, was released into the country, and roamed for nearly a year free before he was arrested in, in Minnesota by ICE in January. Does that scare you a little bit? It should, because God knows how many hundreds, if not thousands, of Muslim terrorists that we let walk through the border and are setting up shop in America to kill us. You're concerned? I mean, I don't know. Should you be concerned about Somalian terrorists being allowed to run free in Minnesota? Well, you shouldn't be. We have a Somalian-born Hamas-supporting congresswoman in Ilhan Omar pledging her loyalty to Somalia before America. She assured her Somali-American constituents that she would do everything in her power to prevent the breakaway Republic of Somaliland from entering into a sea access deal with landlocked Ethiopia. She said, quote, as Somalis, one day we will go after our missing, after our missing territories. She supports Hamas, and she's forgotten, apparently, that she's an American. It's because she's not an American. She's a Trojan horse. Everything the Democrats are doing with these illegals is based solely on getting votes and winning elections. The consequences of letting this slop into America is not their concern. They can be members of gangs, commit crimes, they won't be deported. Housing prices are affected because we're using up housing for these savages, meaning there's less houses for the rest of us who actually pay for them. The prices are going up. Our taxes are going up to help pay for them, to pay for cops to try to stop them from killing us. Illegals can get bank loans, mortgages, insurance, driver's license, free health care, in-state college tuition, but they don't have to pay taxes. This is treason, what the Democrats have done. It is treason. That's what they're doing. They're destroying America, and it could not be more obvious. But the treason by the Democrats is two-pronged. It's not just that they're letting in illegals to get votes. They're appeasing Muslim terror supporters who already are American citizens and voters because Joe Biden needs to win some swing states which have large amounts of Muslim terror supporters inside them. That's, that's the truth. I'm going to go into that in a bit. But you also have traditionally leftist cities, where Democrats, where they simply are filled with Jew haters and America-hating Muslims. Keep in mind that 57% of American Muslims blame Israel for Hamas's October 7th terror attack, which massacred 1,200 Israelis. 
Last week on Friday, in Manhattan, there was yet another Hamas rally at Columbia, Hamas and Hezbollah. Violence, calling for the murder of Jews, attacking the NYPD. Terrorists are wearing their terrorist scarves and waving Palestinian flags, screaming, NYPD, burn in hell. Very few arrests, and they were, of course, immediately released. Most didn't even have to see a judge. This is a regular thing in New York City these days on an almost daily occurrence. Muslim terrorists rampaging in the streets while the NYPD does nothing to stop it. New York City, and look, stop it. They, they support it. New York City's controller, Brad Lander, a leftist Jew, the city's highest-ranking Jew elected official, ate a Shabbat dinner at a Palestinian restaurant in Brooklyn that is wildly anti-Semitic. They have a river from the river to the sea menu, which means destroying Israel, killing everybody inside it. That's what their menu is called. He joined 1,300 rabid Hamas supporters on January 27 at the restaurant and ate with a socialist Muslim city council member who blamed Israel for the October 7 Hamas massacre. I mean, you can't even trust the Jews if they're liberal. As far as I'm concerned, I'm praying for a terror attack and I hope they get those liberal Jews first. They're worse than any of them because without the liberal Jews, none of this shit happens in America. None of this terror shit happens. The liberal Jews give them the cover. They provide the cover to every Jew hater there is because they hate Jews. And as I said, the, the open rallies and support for uh, Muslim terror groups are not just in New York, in Dearborn, Michigan. Listen to this. Thousands march in support of Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iran. Protesters with their faces covered with their kafiyas are shouting intifada, intifada, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, America is a terrorist state. They're local imams, that means they're religious leaders, give these anti-Semitic sermons almost immediately after October 7 and long before Israel began its ground offensive in Gaza, people in Dearborn were celebrating Hamas's massacre with pro-Hamas rallies marching through Dearborn. A local headline in the newspaper described an October event at the Ford Performing Arts Center saying Michigan rally cheers Hamas attacks. There's an imam named Imran Salah of Dearborn's Islamic Center of Detroit told the crowd that Israel's past actions have put, quote, fire in our hearts that will burn that state until its demise. In May of 2023, this Imran Salah had urged his congregation to say amen in agreement with his prayers that Allah, quote, eradicate from existence the, quote, sick, disgusting Zionist regime. In October of 2022, his organization received $150,000 in funding from the Homeland Security Department's nonprofit security grants program. We're paying these wild, fucking, savage Muslim terrorists to hate us and try to destroy us. At another rally held on October 14th, a week after the Hamas terror attack, Imran Usama Abdul Ghani also didn't hide his support for Hamas's terror actions. Now, keep in mind, they killed 39 Americans. They've still got some held kidnapped Americans. But this American-born, Iranian-educated, so-called Shiite scholar called October 7th, quote, one of the days of God and a, quote, miracle come true. He described the attackers as honorable. He said they were lions defending the entire nation of Muhammad, the messenger. 
This is the kind of disease, the filth that we've allowed into this country and allow them to speak like this. Local enthusiasm for jihad against Israel and the West, it extends beyond just Hamas. The Islamic Center of America, a leading Dearborn mosque, held a memorial service on December 30th for a Hezbollah operative killed in an Israeli airstrike. I mean, these are people that have killed hundreds of Americans. All right. They have celebrations honoring the Iranian uh, terror commander, Qasem Soleimani, and his partner who, who were killed by a, a U.S. strike in January of 2020. <clears throat> These men were listed on the U.S. list of designated terrorists when they were killed. And we've got Americans celebrating them. The commemoration that this Imran did, Imran did included poetry and praise, along with claims that ISIS was operated by both the CIA and the Mossad. Imam Abdul Ghani used his remarks to express, quote, his warmest congratulations to our very special leader, Imam Khomeini. He's talking about the Ayatollah of Iran. He's declaring allegiance to the Iranian Ayatollah who regularly calls for the destruction of Israel and is responsible for American and Israeli deaths. This is happening in America today. Support for terrorism in, in southern Michigan has long been a concern for American counterterrorism officials. In 2001, okay, Michigan State Police assessed, uh, they submitted a, a report to the Justice Department after 9-11 called Dearborn. 2001, this is 23 years ago, a major financial support center and recruiting error area and potential support base for inter international terror groups, including possible sleeper cells. Their assessment noted that most of the 28 State Department-identified terror groups were represented in Michigan. Many current or one-time Dearborn residents have been convicted of terror-related activities in recent years. I mean, this is absolutely sick. You've got their leaders, the Muslim leaders there, are openly celebrating, quote, the hearts haven't been overjoyed like this in so long after the October 7 massacre. Muslim leaders in Michigan are supporting terrorism. I mean, it's, it's absolutely sick. He calls Jews apes and swines. I mean, this is absolutely sick. He's, this, this imam said that the West has to start normalizing the term jihad by using it frequently on your social media and in the mosques. We're allowing this to happen. How do you think this ends? Now, nothing's been done to Michigan. Why? Because Michigan is a must-win state for Democrats, and Biden and his campaign strategists are clearly worried that the Jew hate, the Israel hate, the American hate in Michigan could hurt him in November, so you got to just keep your mouth shut. And when Biden went to Michigan, Muslim leaders refused to meet with him. They publicly said they won't vote for him because he supported Israel in Israel's response to the massacre on October 7th. They're using their votes to convince Biden to change his approach towards Israel. This is why he's pressing Israel, Biden, to give the Palestinians their own state, even though it makes no sense. How can the Palestinians have their own state when it would be run by Hamas, which is sworn to destroy Israel? Doesn't Hamas need to be destroyed first before you can even consider giving them? These savages, these fucking savages, their own state that 85% of them supported October 7th, where every home had a tunnel entrance and weapons in it? 
How can you give them their own state when Hamas still exists? Well, Joe Biden says, no, you need to stop killing the Palestinian terrorists. He's even threatening to hold back weapons, munitions from Israel to get them to stop because he needs the Muslim vote. All he cares about is winning that fucking shithole state, that Muslim terror shithole state of Michigan. So to appease these Muslim terror supporters, he's changing his foreign policy. How crazy is this? And, and his, his staff in the White House, his advisors, they had like a one-day hunger strike in support of Gaza. Forget the three Americans that were killed by Iran a week ago. There was no hunger strike for them. There was no concern for them, just for the Muslim terrorists in Gaza. This is the Democratic Party. This is why, as Israel is fighting terrorists who raped and mutilated Israeli women, who shot them in the face and in the generals, this is why Joe Biden made a big deal about sanctioning four Israeli settlers in the West Bank because they were fighting with Palestinian terrorists? Now, these are four Israelis who've never had any interest in leaving Israel. Now they've been sanctioned by not allowing them to come to the United States as if they care? A few of these settlers were already being prosecuted in Israel. Yet Joe Biden had to make a big deal over this completely impotent and worthless sanctions order just to slap Israel and to make a point to his Muslim voters. I'm willing to hurt Israel. I'm going to treat Israel and Palestine the same, even though one is a Muslim terror entity that kills Americans and the other is the only democratic country in the entire shithole of the Middle East. It's amazing. You're not convinced? How about the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees? It's a UN group which collects money from gullible and Jew-hating leftist countries and gives the money to Hamas. That's the organization, the UN uh, RWA, which had members of it join Palestinians and Hamas on October 7 in kidnapping and massacring Israelis. The UN workers were there. 10% of their members are aligned with Hamas. They finally got caught. And the Western countries mostly stopped giving them money, even though it's been clear for years that they're at front for Hamas. Donald Trump, to his credit, stopped American funding as soon as he came into office. Somehow they survived, though, even though almost no Arab countries give them a penny because they know what they are. Arab countries don't like Hamas. They don't like the Palestinians. They don't give a shit what happens to them. Just the West are stupid enough to give them money. So what did Joe Biden do when he came into office? Well, he gave him a billion dollars. A billion dollars to terrorists, to Hamas. He's funding Hamas. How do you think these tunnels are being made? In Gaza. Where do you think the money's coming from? Joe Biden is helping. Joe Biden. Meanwhile, after it was revealed that uh, the UN uh, RWA members were involved in the massacre, he really put his foot down. He pledged to stop giving them money after the next election. So he's still funding them now. As I said before, three of our servicemen were killed in Jordan last week at an American base. Jordan is our ally, our so-called ally. They were killed by Iranian-backed terrorists. This is after hundreds of these terror attacks against our troops in the Middle East by Iranian terror proxies. Finally, they succeeded in killing three. We should have, frankly, destroyed the Iranian Navy. Day one. Immediately bombed them to smithereens and said, if this does not stop your behavior, we're coming into Tehran and we're going to start bombing your palaces. 
we're going to start killing your people. That's what should have been done any kind. Now, what are you afraid of? That Iran is going to set their proxies off in the Middle East? Then just destroy Iran. See what Hezbollah does. Uh, see what Hamas does if Iran no longer exists, if the Mullahs are no longer in charge. But of course, Joe Biden can't do that because he doesn't want to upset his Muslim voters. This is how foreign policy is being shaped. For five days, Biden didn't respond. He simply kept saying that he doesn't want a war with Iran. He doesn't want to escalate things. They killed three of our people. Isn't that an escalation? Our servicemen died in vain because Joe Biden was afraid to upset Muslim voters in America who support Iran, who support Hamas, who hate Jews, who hate Israel, who hate America. For five days, Biden begged Iran not to be upset by the coming response that America would have to do. Finally, like on day six, after promising that he would not attack inside Iran and doing all that he could to appease Iran, he finally dropped a few bombs and, and gave them every opportunity to get all their important stuff out of the way. The Iranians were laughing at us. Biden is so terrified of Iran ratcheting up their terrorism terrorism and forcing America to act only because he's afraid to lose the Muslim terror vote in America. Who are they going to vote for, by the way? Donald Trump? Trump at least might do something. No, Joe Biden is afraid they'll sit home. This is our foreign policy now. We're doing all that we can not to upset Hitler-worshipping Muslim terrorists in America. How fucked up is that? By the way, Donald Trump isn't concerned about any of this. He doesn't talk about it publicly. He doesn't tweet. He doesn't do it on that, that truth social, that idiotic platform that he has that nobody looks at other than the MAGA morons. Yesterday on his social media site, he put up a picture of himself next to a picture of Elvis Presley. And he said that everyone tells him he looks like Elvis. This is the level of intellect who's going to save the country. This is our choice besides Joe Biden. We are fucked. Get armed. Be prepared to use it. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. You can hear me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeart Radio, wherever podcasts can be found. Thank you. Thank you.